and welcome, Jad. So you're joining us from Canada. Yes, yes. Hi, Kate. How are you? I'm very well, thank my you. My pleasure. In fact, it's really my pleasure. I've I've seen the background and what you do, and I loved it. So I'm excited. Oh, so Jad, you are a wonderful mix of skills and story. And can you just summarize the listener? What brings you, how you've brought all your skills together to what you, you just describe your background, your story. Okay. So uh, by default, I won't take the, the short version. Usually when I'm asked that, I tell them you want the short version or the long version. Mm. And in a nutshell, the, the short version would be mind and body therapy. Uh, the long version is the how it started. I started my career in physical therapy. And as soon as I finished, I finished my uh, uh, BS in, in physical therapy, I discovered that I, I was deeply dissatisfied with what I learned. I even had a slight depression after that. I, I started taking some pills. I don't even remember what was that, but I was really, really disappointed after four years of study. I felt that's very disappointed, uh, disappointing. So then I started studying more and more stuff. I dived into osteopathy and I had my first master's in osteopathy. Then when you dive deep in osteopathy, you discover that it was highly influenced by the Chinese medicine and ancient medicine and Asian culture. So I went, studied acupuncture and Chinese medicine. And this is where there was the big revelations about the connections between the mind and the body and how in Chinese medicine, they, they correlated and they, they, they dissected it very similar to the Indian medicine to the chakras and how each part of the body and each organ would manifest a certain category of emotions and a certain subcategory of stress, if I can say. So the head means something, the heart means something, the stomach means something, the liver means something, the kidney, etc., etc. So it was a very interesting connections. I wanted to go deeper because I noticed that, okay, I have a set of skills in physical therapy, osteopathy, acupuncture, but what about the emotions? So I started researching what can I study more so I can deal with the emotions and I can help people deal and process their emotions and their stress. So first I started my journey on that field, I was studying hypnotherapy. So I studied hypnotherapy. I later on became an, uh, uh, an instructor and a hypnotherapy teacher. And the more I studied, the more I noticed I need more tools. So I started studying cognitive and behavioral approach, then mindfulness therapy, and then started studying breathwork therapy. I studied rebirthing and holotropic breathing, and I found it fascinating. It was life-changing. And then I thought it's you know, uh, breathwork is more than that. So I decided to put in place my own breathwork technique, which is emotional liberation breathing. And I connected it to everything else I've studied, the scientific background. And from there, I did a doctorate in physical therapy. And my thesis was about psychosomatic illnesses and the mind and body concept, how the mind and body are connected together and how the stress and emotions would affect our mental health, our behavioral health and our physical health and diving deeply into these connections. So that was the long version. So Shad, you're from Lebanon and now you're in Canada. So yep. you've got an exposure to, um, and with your deviation through Chinese medicine as well, you've got exposure to what health means across quite a lot of cultures too. Yeah. And I've been traveling also to India to teach emotional liberation breathing. So, uh, we have a big community of breathwork therapists in India. Uh, and uh, also I'm very deeply in touch with the Indian medicine and the Indian culture of that, which is somewhat very close to the Chinese. There is a lot of intersections, but there are also many differences, you know, but definitely it, it's a, it's well, a wide, it's a big spectrum, let's say. With the anapathic medicine model, have we lost sight of this interconnection of all our body parts and become far too reductionist and here's the needle, here's the powder, it'll solve that one element. 
for sure, for sure, hundred percent. I always say we need to learn to my students. We need to learn to grow horizontally in knowledge, not just in vertical knowledge, because we need to keep this holistic vision. And you know, Hippocrates, uh, if you read his his you know his uh, documents and the old documents about the medicine, it it was all about that too back then. You know, with the technology and with the industrial revolution and with everything that happened to humanity, the good and the bad, the bad side was like, we started dissecting too much. And I think we need both somehow. We need some specialist in the liver who would can, you know, just work on livers all his life, maybe, because in some cases we will need that. And we will need someone who was a, who is able to look at the whole thing, to look at the anger and the anxiety and the pain and the, the emotional pain and the sufferance and the childhood and the, you know, all how we process our emotions and we need to integrate them, you know. And one one of my favorite Chinese teachers in Chinese medicine, he used to draw this what what's called integrative medicine medicine actually how it's. We integrate, it's like a leaf of a paper. And one side is um, specialized medicine in specific aspects, like cancer specialist or ENT or whatever specialist there are, there is. And the other part of the leaf is the holistic approach and how we can integrate them. And the problem is with, with the holistic approach is that there's a lot of science and there's a lot of pseudoscience too. So. It's hard for someone who wants to go to alternative medicine or to interrogative medicine to be able to differentiate what's what's scientific, what's not. You know, there's a lot of anything and everything on that field, which makes it even more complicated for people to know how to go. So you really managed to break free of the mold very soon after graduating in terms of recognizing what you'd been taught wasn't the answer to everything you were looking for. Yeah, I was lucky. (laughs) (laughs) Moments of depression and frustration for however long it lasts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've shared this with the very few people. I feel strange how it came up like this here. (laughs) Well, I suspect there's an awful lot of physiotherapists listening, feeling relieved and not alone that you've acknowledged the disappointment that you felt on graduating. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I've I've tried, I've tried along the years to make it up to, to my initial career, the physical therapy by teaching as much as I can and by giving post-grad postgrad courses about that and to to bring this knowledge to uh because it took me so much time and so much years to study so much things that after all you know you you make your own cuisine and your own recipe and then it it's complicated when you want to advise someone in a fresh grad or student because I've been teaching physical therapy and uh, my favorite topic is the biopsychosocial model because this is where we dive deeply into the mind and the body. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's a, my students used to ask me, how long did you study to the, too long? And I'm, I'm trying to make it easier for everyone by trying to put up courses together that would bring a little bit of everything to make this, to build the knowledge of this horizontal vision and yet scientific at the same time. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, I, I feel, I feel them. I, uh, I love this profession and I feel there's, there's a lot to be done to make it grow and to be more and more holistic for sure. And I hope, I hope we'll have a lot of physical therapists listening to this and, uh, they can relate. I hope. Well, I think there's a mixed question at the moment in terms of a lot of physios have just lost sight in terms of their identity of what do they do and who are they? Yeah. Are they actually useful at all? Yeah, that's you're diving deep here. <laughs> that used to that used to be a big topic in in the in the university where I used to teach in Lebanon. Uh, it used to be a big topic of discussion with the board members of when we when when there was a change in the courses or in the structure. There's always this, or in the syndicate in in Lebanon back then. 
it's the discussion about and the clashes even about the identity of the physical therapist. So what is a physical therapist? What is physical therapy? Where does it start? Where does it stop? And the borders and the definition is, uh, is still debatable. And there's, there are differences between countries and cultures. And uh, yeah, it's uh, spot on. Yeah. And I think it's largely down to the individual. I think it's about how you want to serve the people that you have a calling to, to help um, and let it be broad. It doesn't have to be yeah. And, vision. and we are going to overlap with podiatrists. We are going to overlap with sleep, dietitians, counseling. We are going to overlap. Oh, how much you overlap is going to depend on you largely and, and the people that you serve and what their needs are. I don't think overlapping is the problem for me, at least the way I've seen it and I've experienced it, because at, at a certain moment we can overlap to some extent, but after all, we are all a team. So I can overlap with a dietitian or I can overlap with a psychologist or I can overlap with a, with a personal trainer or I can overlap. These are the main people that are coming uh, with a speech therapist or I can overlap with a, a behavioral therapist. Uh, but the overlap is, you know, after all, they studied everything there, right? So at a certain moment, the overlap, I see it as a bridge, not as an overlap. Because it's as if I'm telling a client or a patient, you know, you need to seek psychotherapy because, you know, there's, I can suspect something here, you know, I can, I can suspect a depression or an OCD, or I can suspect a, a bipolar disorder, for example. I won't say it between me and myself, I'd suspect that but if I tell that person, you need to go to seek help on that field. 90% of the time, this is going to be rejected. So this overlap actually is a bridge because I'm going to walk away, walk with that person on that bridge by overlapping to some extent. And I'm going to start talking emotions. I'm going to start talking cognitive and behavioral therapy. And I'm going to guide that person to the closest possible distance where, where I will be able to tell them, hey, listen, now you need to continue because you need psychotherapy. I, I'm not a psychotherapist. I cannot replace that. I can walk away with you and I can overlap that much, but I cannot overlap more than that. But a lot of people within that overlap will feel so much better, will feel so much confident about what we did. So they will do the last step and they will end up seeking the therapy that they need. The speech therapy, the, the, the dietitian approach and the, the, the rehabilitation of the eating behavior, if you want to name it well, right? So yeah, I, I don't see it as an overlap in the terms of we're, ex we're not respecting our limit. I've seen, I've seen it more than a bridge. And that's why I created an institute where I teach everything I do and I've called it the bridge institute. And that's the reason why it is the bridge. It's the overlap. Yeah. And actually we're so people are so really reticent or they're scared. I mean, certainly I very much remember as a junior physio being scared to end up in any conversation that might require a box of tissues to be brought out. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to do was ask a question that might make anybody cry. Um, and then bit by bit you start to realize it's okay. You can have a box of you tissues know, in your kid's room. You know what? I I think if there are physical therapists watching uh, and listening, uh, um, they know this. They know that actually they're dealing with a lot more than just physical pain. They know it deep down. They know they can see it. The patients and the clients would come and will talk and they feel secure and safe with the physical therapist to talk because there's this physical touch. There's the oxytocin connection and builds confidence and trust. And then, you know, there's a lot of opening up, you know, most of the time the physical therapist, because of personal reasons and personality might feel not comfortable with that. Maybe it wakes up stuff inside of them and they want to do, or they just don't know how to deal with it. And some would, would listen and would encourage more clients to talk. So, um. They know that there is a lot more than the physical aspect there. Everyone knows. Um, I have, I have no doubt that 
all my colleagues all over the world, they know this. Now, if they think they need to overlap, they need to stretch a little bit their knowledge. So during that same session, they'd start guiding the discussion in a specific way, you know, and influencing directly or indirectly by asking specific set of questions to make the client or the patient move towards that direction where they would be aware of seeking another type of help at the same time. That's where, you know, some physical therapists will feel comfortable and others won't feel comfortable to do that. Now, I want to ask you a little bit more about the breath work because it really yeah. struck me. It was quite incidental that I heard of the Dutch guy. Um, what well, forgot his name right now? Wim Hof. Wim Hof, yeah. Ice yeah. Max. It was quite incidental that I heard about him. It was a, some friends joking in a bar. One of them was going to train. And anyway, I heard about it. It was like, oh. In the end, it turned out to be incredibly valuable to me. Um, but again, I recognized as a physiotherapist, Okay, you know, you do your junior rotations working on respiratory wards. It doesn't yeah. actually teach you how to breathe or the importance of breathing or anything very useful that turns, translates into the person yeah. that's not an ITU or a hospital ward. You know, um, I'd say it's fairly speaking, 50% of our international students and local students in in, in breathwork there and emotional liberation breathing are physical therapists. So there's a lot of interest. It's just the beginning. I'm, I'm, I'm expecting this to grow because awareness is growing a lot about breathwork. It's just the beginning. I can see the future of breathwork growing a lot and emotional liberation breathing has a specific position in that because it's very scientific and it comes from all the things that I've studied in my doctorate. And it really has solid scientific roots. And now we're, we'll be publishing soon a study about ELB and migraine. And we help 314 people suffering from migraine just with breathwork therapy. And refractory migraine, which people who were not uh, the golden standards didn't help them. And, you know, they are in the percentage where it didn't work for them. So, and we have amazing results and we have 15 studies in the pipeline that's going to be published in the coming two, three years about the breathwork, so I'm ex about ELB more specifically. So I'm expecting more physical therapists tuning into breathwork. And it's amazing because we know the anatomy, we know the physiology of breath, we know everything about breath, but we don't know how far it can go. It's like you driving a car. You know, just like James Bond cars, right? It, it looks like a normal car, just, you know, a, a fancy car, but you don't know that it has this so many features inside of it or secret features inside of it. So breath is like that. It has so many secret features. If you do a specific type of breathing for more than 15 minutes, new things will manifest in your body that you have never experienced before. It's just these secret features that you don't know that they exist in that function. So it's, um, and it, it has so much power to, to heal and to treat. I don't like always to use the word heal, to treat also, uh, so many illnesses and so many problems and so many issues that no other tools was able to heal, not even medications, things that are in a, I can dare to say, you know, Things that sometimes we know that there's no real treatment for that on just surgery. And in breathwork, sometimes we can treat things and avoid surgery in many cases. Or sometimes there's just no real treatment like autoimmune diseases. Breathwork therapy has a huge uh, um, results in improving the symptoms of the autoimmune diseases. So Crohn, for example, MS have amazing results. Uh, so many things, so many things. Really, I can talk hours just about breathwork. So you'll need to stop me here. <laughs> I'm going to ask you one more question about it. Is it something to do with the vagus nerve? That why it's so powerful? Or about one of the aspect, of course. It, it's you know, emotional liberation breathing is based on eight scientific principles, uh, based on on hard science, right? So one of the principles is the 
sympathetic parasympathic autonomous nervous system. And the vagus nerve is one of that. The vagus nerve is the main part or one of the main, uh, let's call it um, parts or uh, yeah, parts of the parasympathetic uh, uh, nervous system. So there is the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. If we do the analogy in Chinese medicine, we will have the yin and the yang energy, which is 90% the analogy with fit. You will have the yin and the yang, and you'll have the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. So the vagal nerve is the nerve that will transfer the parasympathetic message to the digestive system and the lower abdomen part, right? So yes, it is a big part of it, but it's just one part of it. There are other pillars that would guide the breath work and what happens during the breathing. You know, there's a lot of Freudian stuff that happens. There's a lot of transfer that happens. There's a lot of rejections that happens. There's a lot of CBT model uh, that are happening while doing the breathwork therapy. There's a lot of myofacial tension and myofacial release. There's a lot of changes in the uh, uh, frequency and the brain frequency that happens along the way. So there's a lot that's happening. And that's what, and actually that's what made me put in place emotional liberation breathing because um, rebirthing is, there's a lot of spiritual component, which I'm all with the connection between spiritual spirituality and mental health, but I'm not with imposing specific spiritual belief to someone because he needs to heal. And, and rebirthing it, it, it is a huge breakthrough, but unfortunately it holds this spiritual rigid baggage that comes with it, which, which, you know, Leonard Orr put it in place and he was mainly preaching for physical immortality and to avoid, uh, dying and, and reincarnating and dying and reincarnating. And that was the main thing. If you div, dive, dig deeper into what is rebirthing and what's the ultimate goal of rebirthing mm. is that. And then if you look at holotropic breathing, which these are the main, the most two famous breathwork techniques, the holotropic breathing was made mainly by this Russian, um, psychiatrist. I always grow, I think, uh, and it was mainly to replace psychedelic, psychedelic treatments and how the hyperventilation would inhibit the conscious mind and will create the same effect of psychedelic uh, um, uh, ingredients and substances and to have this curing effect of the psychedelic. But this happens sometimes in breath work, but it's not all of it, neither. So the main two most famous breath work techniques are, you know, each one closed in its own place. Mm -hmm. I felt, but this is, What's happening is so much more. We cannot just link it to spirituality. There's more than spirituality. There is spirituality, but there's more. And there's each one's spirituality that needs to be respected, you know? And there's so much more than hyperventilation that's happening. It's happening sometimes, sometimes not, but there's so much more. So there's a lot here and so many scientific pillars. That, that's what made me, you know, uh, put in place CLB and start teaching it. It's because so much scientific stuff are happening in our mind and in our body, but we cannot just reduce it to one aspect. And this is what most of breathwork techniques do. They just, you know, link it. It's, it does that or just that. No, there's so much happening at the same time. If I've understood correctly, Jad, though, the, what we're describing is that the Breathwork enables the body to access emotions that are trapped in it in the same way that hypnotherapy or meditation. But also the mind, not just in the body, in the mind and in the body. Both. Yeah. Happens at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah, so we have this huge organ with the, the and I slightly wonder sometimes at the moment, are we, well, we got too obsessed with the mental health narratives and forgotten the physicality, which again, breathwork is, is, is a physical, is part of our physicality. Yeah. And then we, we, we've sort of got detached again, that we're one or the other, we're rather than being a whole. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because there's the memory of the body and there's the 
you know, I'll, I'll give you some scientific, basic, simple information, well-known quite actually, like the impact on the, of the posture on the hormonal secretions. So the posture, which is the body, right, would impact some neurotransmitters in the brain that would impact directly the mental health, posture, the body, and the mind, right? The breath, it's also scientifically proven. If you focus on your breath and you maintain a certain type of breath, your anxiety will go down 70% just in five minutes. So by controlling a, a physical aspect, like the posture or the breath or a smile, a fake smile on the face, we're st the starting point here is the body, the breath, posture, face, but the impact is on the mental health and on the emotions and vice versa. If you're happy, your posture will, you cannot be happy like that, right? Mm -hmm. I'm happy. Of someone. <laughs> I'm happy. It doesn't work. You know, so you cannot be happy and like that. You know, if, if a physical therapist is treating a postural problem and someone is depressed, it's, you know, you're swimming against the current. It's going to take time, mm -hmm. two, two more years to fix it. If, if it will be fixed, if the depression is not dealt with, for example, or the chronic sadness or the loneliness or you name it. So it's bi-directional. It's bi-directional. We cannot let go and forget that aspect. The muscle mass in our body has a huge impact on our emotional mindset, on our emotions, on our neurotransmitters. Chemically speaking, if you have a lower mus muscle mass, it's different. So just to I'm a swimming because I very much enjoy swimming. Yeah. And I've often wondered, because when you look at a novice swimmer, so I've done triathlons in the past and quite a lot of triathletes come from a running or cycling background and having to learn to swim. But if you know how to swim, you are of swum from where, where, where you're very young, you just breathe in the water without particularly thinking about it terribly much. Sure. Um, and I've often wondered with swimming and also with wind instruments, you're sort of in a rhythm or in a sync of breathing no. without too much thought if you're proficient at it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And that, so that is a, a touching on an introduction to the breath work. Because you're, or is it? Am I making an assumption there? Cardio, all cardiovascular sports, if we want to think of it, there's always this rhythm of breathing. Now, and the swimming is more delicate because there's, you know, the, the swimming techniques and the synchronicity is more delicate and more important. And in, in the swimming, all cardiovascular sports, you have the synchronicity of the breathing. You know, the thing is, is that you're consuming all the O2 you're over breathing, but in the breath work, what's happening, you're, you're raising the level of O2, but you're not consuming it with the muscle activity. So it's, it's a twist if you want with yes. the breath. That's one of the main differences, but in the sports, there's a lot of CBT models that happens. That's why sports is so valuable. I can just give you a very simple, what I'm, I'm saying CBT model, CBT model. Let me just give a very simple, clear, obvious example. So for example, if, if you're swimming or running and you feel challenged and you feel there's this last stretch, it's impossible for you. You feel that's it. That's your limit. And you hit the wall, right? And that's it. You feel you have nothing in you anymore to continue. But here's someone, your coach comes and start pushing you, maybe yelling at you all the possible ways coach, swimming coach can do to motivate you and say, come on, you can do it. And it's proven high voice and high pitch can increase the motivation of someone. It's very well documented. So, and then you push yourself and you reach that, you do this last hundred meter. What happened? That's you're technically doing a CBT session here, a cognitive and behavioral therapy session. Cognitive because you have this belief along with the emotions that this is my limit. I cannot do this anymore. I'm tired. That's my limit. And there's a big debate on that. What's the limit of the body? We can dive into it if you want. Because mm. that's a very blurry thing and most of the time wrong. So you thought that's my limit, you know, and then you, you discovered that, no, 
my limit is more than that. That's, that's a CBT lesson here. You know, you were aware of something. You had a belief along with an emotion of, you know, maybe not motivated, anxious. Maybe I'll hurt myself if I continue. It's impossible. My body cannot do it. Right. And then you're pushed and then you can do it. Then you, you reverse the belief. You change the belief. You change the emotion by imposing a certain behavior being pushed by someone. So the change of the behavior was able to change a belief with an emotion. We're doing a CBT here, right? So in ELB, in emotional liberation breathing, this is what happens too. So we are aware of the limitation. And during the breathing session, the person might say, oh, I cannot do this anymore. This is too tough. And then it's come on a little bit more, a little bit more than... Oh, suddenly there's more, there's no more fatigue. There's no more, I feel more energetic. And whoa, what happened? Do you see? And there's always this back and forth and this lessons and learning about the limiting beliefs and, and breaking them by behavior and then changing them. You know, it's a lot is happening. A lot is happening when we do sports and when we do breathing and when we do so much things. We need just to be aware of what's happening so you can use the right words and then use the right, what I can say, anchoring and reinforcing afterwards. So if the coach would just stop there, it's very nice already. But imagine your swimming coach will tell you, so, hey, let's take one minute, just one minute, and let's discuss about, so what you believed was your limit wasn't your limit, isn't it? I'd say, yeah. I was like, can you apply this in other fields of your life? And that's it. This one minute. This one minute can be life-changing because he just took this extra one minute. But hey, this one minute sometimes take six months of studying <laughs> and taking two full courses just to be able to say this one minute. But that's the overlapping. And so what I'm taking from this is that um, we are way more resilient than we think we are. And also the potential that we have as practitioners mm. to really take people further, further, further into achieving yeah. what they don't think they can. Sure. And we stop too soon. For sure. For sure. One, one day I, ha I was interviewing, we, we never publish it, shame, uh, we will. Um, interviewing uh, um, an outdoor extreme uh, sports guide who takes people into uh, mountain hiking and, you know, going to the highest peaks in the world. And it's the same. It's, you know, people have this misconception about my limits and this is the limits of my body. And listening to the body is a big trap, a big trap. And, uh, you know, it's very controversial and I'm used to hearing a lot of negative feedback, but from a body specialist and from discussing this with colleagues all around the world and with people who deal with the body and would see the limits of the body and they will all tell you the same. What we think is the limit of our body is not the limit of our body. It's way beyond that. And just like the limit of our body, we think it's there, but it's there. It's everything it's in everything in our lives you know it, we think this is our limit but this is our limit and i know you you have seen some of your podcasts I've, I've done my research a little bit i know you talk a lot about the business and the entrepreneurship brain and that and that's that's totally aligned with that because if the entrepreneur is not in this mindset and will see this limiting belief and he won't trust himself and that cannot do more i'm so tired i'm overwhelmed that's it that's my limit i'm gonna drop my idea and that's what's happened you know then that's playing against any entrepreneur who has a creative idea and wants to go forward with it and that's I'm, pushing the limits pushing I'm the so glad of this conversation job because this is where we're at right now that the practitioner who has some selection they might not have got all the tools that you've got but they have some selection of these tools and they're starting to recognize that they can make more impact. I think we've got to a point now where the sort of corporate or state health model doesn't give them the freedom to yeah. do that. So the practitioner's now at a point where 
you thought you were at your limit in terms of having got skilled, but now, yes, you need to run a proficient practice too to be able to serve your community. I love the way you, I love what you just did. (laughs) Yeah. But on, but on, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Because I think what you're also describing really nicely is um, sometimes I do listen to some practitioners. I think you're replaceable with ChatGTP. If you're just giving an exercise sheet, well, I can put a search on ChatGTP and ask what exercise I should do for my shoulder. Um, but what you're describing actually is for somebody to achieve their potential, they like it, it's useful to have somebody walk that bridge with them. Yeah, not, it's very hard to break through those yeah. barriers by yourself. So complex. It's so complex, and it has to be so personalized too. Yeah. So, but, and, and I think there's, there's a need of a lot of awareness here, awareness for the general public and awareness for the practitioners too. There's a lack of awareness and the, the, I think curriculums should, should level up too. And that's maybe they cannot. And that's why the post-grad, uh, world is here to serve. But I still think there's a lot of awareness that needs to be done for, for everyone here. And what, what you just said last part, the, you know, about the practitioners knowing their limits, that's, that's, there's a lot of awareness that needs to be done there. So then what is stress? Our potential is way more than we think it is. So we can get ourselves stuck in a box yeah. and we can feel stress. Now you're from Beirut, you're now stuck in a very nice room in Canada. <laughs> And I should imagine your perspective on what stress is, it's slightly different from perhaps yeah. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> um, but how I perceive stress, my tolerance to stress might be greater, let's uh, all the same, but it, it, it yeah. is. A threshold. It's a threshold concept, you know, the, and that threshold is defined by so many by so many things. That's why two people going into the same trauma, some would develop PTSD, someone else won't. You know, it's not the trauma itself. It's what happened in this life's person, and this person's life before that trauma. All the beliefs and the limiting beliefs and all the beliefs that would go along with the PTSD and the trauma. And it's like the, the, the trauma is the last piece of the puzzle or the last five pieces of the puzzle that completed the puzzle. But hey, there were the other pieces of the puzzle before the PTSD and someone else won't develop a PTSD. So if the stress level is so high, what's the peak of the stress is a trauma, right? Or is a wound, a childhood wound or an adult trauma or a child trauma. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's the threshold, right? And that threshold, the component of the threshold, and in order for us to understand the threshold, we need to dive into so many things and to so many uh, stuff that there, and we cannot but use some knowledge from Freud and Jung here to understand the concept of threshold. And there are some theories that were also scientifically proven coming from, from Freud. I'm not a big fan, but also I'm not against at all the, the Freudian school. I have a lot of respect and a lot of things that I totally disagree with. Uh, but we need to dive there. We need to dive into the relationship between the person and himself, the perception of the world, the perception of other people, the perception of the self and the level of, if we want to talk some neuroscience a little bit and, and, and neurohormonal, we need to see the serotonin level, the natural level of serotonin and the natural level of GABA and the natural healthy sources of dopamine. So when these three, there's a lot more, I'm simplifying it here, but when the GABA is high, when the serotonin is naturally high, when the dopamine is healthily and naturally into the natural uh, uh, doses and and, uh, amounts, the thresholds are high and the same stress that can break someone won't break someone else. Or, or, or even someone else might thrive on that stress and might use it and grow through it and see opportunities and someone else will be totally broken, you know, 
because the amount of negative affect and negative emotions that will manifest in the mind will be totally different. And then the impact of these negative emotions on the general well-being and on the cognitive and intellectual functions will be different, right? So if you have a negative thought, first, if, if we compare two people, some would in, in five minutes would have no negative thought and someone else would have 20 negative thoughts. And then someone who, two people who would have 20 negative thoughts in 20 minutes, in five minutes, some one person will have these thoughts and they will just slide and they will go. And someone else will have these thoughts and they will latch on the attention and the focus and they will take so much energy and they will drain the cognitive and intellectual capacities. And therefore, what we know in that, in that state, the threshold of everything everything, and I'm going to explain the word everything, the threshold of everything is low. The threshold of pain is low. The capacity and the threshold to digest things that are hard to digest is low. The threshold of intolerances and food intolerances is low. The threshold of allergens and allergies is low. The threshold to be efficient cognitively under pressure is low, and you name it physical, behavioral, cognitive, all thresholds will decrease. And we need to dive there. Into what the person's perception is of themselves. And of the world and of other people. If they are pessimistic or optimistic, if they, uh, they, they catastrophize things, they, they magnify them, if they... Uh, personalize it, if they take things personal or not, if they see it in black and white, all these cognitive distortions that comes from the perception. I see the world as a dark place, therefore I'm pessimistic. Pessimism is a cognitive distortion. And this is all very largely shaped in childhood? Yeah. Unfortunately, yes. So as an adult, it's a lot of work to very consciously readdress it yeah and sometimes we need to dive into the childhood and we need the referral of someone who's specialized in diving into the childhood trauma but sometimes just understanding what's happening and understanding the belief even though we we cannot see and pinpoint exactly where does it come from from the child but we know vaguely speaking where it's coming from but we are aware of it and we are aware of the strategies of changing it, then we can change it for sure. And what you're also describing, if I've understood correctly, is activities that actively raise dopamine levels increase the threshold. We need dopamine alone is not enough. We need the serotonin. We need the GABA and we need the dopamine. And it's a big, big discussion, really. It, it's, but in a nutshell, serotonin comes from connection with others, with satisfaction and satisfying connection with the human beings, comes with the sense of contribution, comes with the capacity of coping, comes with the capacity of creating creativity, connection with the human beings, contribution and meaningfulness in our lives and capacity to cope. These are the sources of serotonin. It's hard work. Dopamine sports, sex, food, sugar, smoking, all addictions are dopamine related, which is the reward pathway, the short term on the spot pleasure. You know, that's the dopamine that we need. We need the positive affect that the, the dopamine style positive affect, but we need more the positive affect that is the serotonin and the GABA style, which is more the satisfaction and the contentment state of mind, the wellness and this inner peace and this calmness inside, you know, we need the pleasure and we need this other form of well-being that some people would call it happiness. Some people would call it contentment, whatever the name is. We need these two and we need healthy sources of dopamine because there are healthy sports is a healthy source of dopamine, you know, doing things you love and you enjoy and you have pleasure as a source of dopamine. You, could go wrong and you can go to substance use and drugs and unhealthy food and processed food and too much sugar and you'll have dopamine too. 
So it's better to have the healthy sources of dopamine. That's what I said previously. The healthy sources of dopamine are important, but we need more serotonin. We need our positive affect to come mostly or to rely mostly on serotonin, not on dopamine. If we need 10 positive affects per day, you know, just a number, we need to have 70% or 60% of these positive affects coming from the serotonin side, not from the dopamine side. Or else we will, dopamine, with time you will need more. Dopamine is addictive. And what we used to do to have 10 units of dopamine, in six months we need to do more to have the same 10 units of dopamine. And then with time, the 10 units of dopamine won't be enough. We would need more dopamine. It's the consumer hormone, dopamine, right? Where serotonin is the contentment, is the needing less to feel better, right? So we need more serotonin in our positive affect than dopamine. If the ideal mix would be 60, 70 positive affect coming from the GABA and the serotonin and 30, 20, 40 max coming from the dopamine, better to have healthy sources of dopamine. When we have this healthy balance, and these are just three hormones, there's, there's a lot more, right? When we have this healthy balance, we have a higher threshold to stress. We have a higher perception of our capacities and limits. We have higher threshold to fatigue, to tire, to challenge everything, you know? So that same swimmer, he might be pushed by his coach and he might say, you can push me for 10 hours, that's it, I'm done. And someone else will be pushed and he'll do it. And that's the threshold of tolerating physical fatigue is different. Physical pain is different. Well, I think you've just explained why I had such a visceral reaction to the lockdown when it was announced, because I was like, hang on a minute. My solutions to any stress have been socializing and exercising and what? So I'm not going to be restricted in both. This is not okay. <laughs> that was my very immediate reaction. Very immediate. And um, so there we go. I just want to share a really lovely story. Um, a lady once was a bookkeeper and she had MS and had swum in her childhood. And she decided to start swimming again. First of all, she just got in the water. And then just like a bookkeeper would, she added two lengths a week. No more, no less. Very precise. Two lengths, two lengths, two lengths. And of course, so that she went three times a week. Of course, before she knew it, she was at a mile. So I can't remember how long that took. Four months or something without doing the maths quickly. But that whole point of that threshold, just yeah. mentally, incrementally, incrementally. So I want to ask, as you've developed your practice and you've really speak out to clients, not in a way, I, in fact, I didn't even recognize to begin with that you were trained as a physiotherapist. Yeah. I'm assuming you've started to attract now people that want to hear your message and want this very holistic and horizontal approach to their, to their health and their well-being when they seek you out. For sure. It took time, but yes, for sure. After a certain time, you start attracting the people who know, who research what you do, who's looking for this exactly because of their bad experiences or lack of results somewhere else, you know, and this is how you start doing it. Say, Hey, when, when nothing worked for you, come to see me. This is how you start branding and marketing yourself first. Mm -hmm. That's what I was going to and, ask you in those yeah. early stages in that transition, as you started to move away from sort of being a conventional physiotherapist. Yeah. Yeah. You're not quite sure on how to articulate what it is you are, and therefore you're not resonating with the people that are searching for something different. But over time, as you're describing, if I've understood correctly, your voice gets clearer and they find you. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's why I've, I've called it after research that mind and body therapy. And, you know, a lot of what's mind and body therapy. And this, where you start giving examples. And the most important part is giving examples where people can relate with. So they can, yeah, that, that's me. That's me. And this is why it didn't work for me before. This is why this technique didn't work for me or that technique or this medication wasn't enough or when I stopped it, I came back to zero or that, you know, I'm, I'm explaining. And, and if you want this, the scientific uh, words, it's the, it will all go back to what is called the biopsychosocial model. You know, the impact of 
psychology and social life on the biology and vice versa, right? And that's, it's, uh, that's a six hour talk. Mm. Oh, just explaining all the components of how biology can impact uh, the emotions and psychology and vice versa. And we can dive into the placebo effect, the nocebo effect, how posture impact, how breathing impacts, how, and, you know, just the few examples that we gave, how social interaction would impact physical health and emotional health. And it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. And I love the way that you have created your own professional category. You've made a category of one for yourselves because I've never met anybody else called a mind-body therapist. There may well be one, but you've created your own institute, your own identity, and it's very simple and very, very clear. And a lot of colleagues are following, and we have a big community now that's that's growing nicely. Good. Well uh, done, you. Yeah. Yeah, really well done. So I'm going to ask, because I'm very curious now, are you still registered as a physio? And are you also registered as a hypnotist? Uh, uh, how many how, how many registrations do you have? And what are you insured as? That's the hardest question, especially after the transition here. So um, I'll, I'll soon, uh, you know, I've mostly now what I'm doing the last year is mostly stress management coaching. And I'm integrating this for... Uh, let's say, uh, legal purposes when the transition, because I didn't have time to do all the equivalences yet. Um, I'm on that road. So, but to, if I want to name what I'm doing now is uh, mental health coaching or stress management coaching, where I integrate the mind and the body and all that knowledge in the coaching labeling for now. But uh, soon the, the osteopathy, the Chinese medicine and all of that will, will follow. But I, I don't see myself um, doing the, the 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 classical form of physical therapy. Uh, so I I'm, I'm not doing this anymore to do to do the equivalency to mm -hmm. to practice that. You know, I'm more and more shifting to the mental health side and giving advice and recommendation and guidance when it comes to the physical therapy part. Unless it's osteopathy or acupuncture, I still have this pleasure of using my hands and uh, touching the body and, and doing the body part of it. So to wrap up, what would you like the takeaways, the takeaway message of yours to be to all the allied health professionals? Because it is an amalgam of, of many skills. Keep growing, keep growing and grow make sure you grow horizontally, make sure you can integrate the mental health aspect in whatever shape, whatever form, whatever tool, please, you have to integrate the mental health aspect in your day-to-day -day practice and let it impact what you say, what you do, what, what words you would choose, what words you would avoid and what kind of advice you would, you would give. It will change your life, it will change your profession and you will you're already changing lives, but you will change them 10 times more. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and for joining me. It was really a pleasure. <laughs>